Welcome to episode 294 with my guest, Dr. Laura Dabney. She's a therapist, also uh, a psychiatrist. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by the Chicagoland Out of the Darkness Walk. Uh, you can go to chicagowalk.org and uh, join uh, as a participant or sponsor a team. And it's put on by the uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention with the goal of saving lives and helping those affected by suicide. Today's episode is also sponsored by Probimune. Did you know that research suggests that up to 80% of your immune system relies on a healthy gut? Well, the people at Young Health know that, which is why they've developed Probimune, a liquid probiotic that promotes intestinal health and contains a unique blend of bacteria not found in 99% of other probiotics. Uh, Right now, our listeners get 50% off their first order of Probimune. That's a $34.95 bottle of Probimune for just $17.48 plus shipping and handling. Go to Probimune.com, that's spelled P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use the promo code MENTAL at checkout to get 50% off today. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, Boy, if you're looking to this for that, you are fucked. Uh, It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. And while I'm thinking of it, I also want to mention anybody who's going to be in L.A. uh, September 23 through 25, Come on to uh, L.A. PodFest. We'll be doing a live version of the podcast on Sunday night, September 25th, I think around 9 o'clock. For more information or tickets, go to LAPodFest.com. You can also watch from your computer. You don't have to be in L.A. And um, you can see tons of other podcasts. They have an amazing lineup. And uh, you can watch it live as it happens, or you can watch it for up to 30 days afterwards. So uh, check all that bullshit out, right? Hmm? Isn't it really just all bullshit when you get right down to it? Aren't I just moving my lips and nothing but hot air coming out? That's probably not a good way to start the show. Let me read a couple of surveys before we get to uh, Dr. Dabney. Um, These are from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This is filled out by Treppenwitz, who is agender and writes about their depression. Wanting to want things. That one hit me like an axe between the eyes. Yes, that is exactly what depression feels like to me. Wanting to want things. Oh, my God. Uh, About their anxiety. Standing in the middle of a field in a lightning storm. You're not safe where you are, but there's nowhere else to go about their PTSD, being stalked by an overactive fire alarm that no one else can hear, and then a snapshot from their life. Every night, I have to make the impossible decision of whether I'm sleeping in the same bed as my partner or in a separate room. I never know ahead of time if I'll have the kind of nightmares where I wake up afraid of people or the ones where I wake up afraid of being alone. Thank you for that. Uh... Taco Night in America describes his anxiety as like I'm a ghost in a room full of people. If I say or do anything, they will all freak out about his alcoholism and drug addiction. When not drinking, I'm in a desert. When drinking, I'm drowning. That is so, 
Oh, you guys are so good at these. And then uh, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself, I wish I wasn't that interesting. And um, he lives with a father-in-law who has borderline personality disorder. And uh, he writes, living with somebody who has borderline personality disorder is like your life is for rent, but you aren't sure what the lease agreement says. I fear that I'm inadequate. fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. I'm here with Dr. Laura Dabney, who is a uh, psychologist psychiatrist and uh you've been in practice for over 20 years yeah, correct? just about 20 years yeah uh, you were originally based out of virginia beach uh, but now you travel all over the country to different cities uh working with people well actually i treat people in other cities via skype now oh okay so that's I, th- our, I thought yeah. it meant that you traveled to uh, to go see them but ironically i had to become a life coach to do that because you can't practice medicine across state lines oh you can't <laughs> no so my whole I'll, everybody, I only have a few people in my practice, but we all became life coaches so we could do that. It was a nightmare of trying to figure all that out. I bet. So you can't uh, prescribe meds, but you can do everything else, right? Well, you know, I, I'm, even though I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm an MD, but I mostly do psychotherapy. That's a lot more fun. And I don't have to deal with insurance companies. Mm-hmm. So I've always done therapy. And even though that's across state lines, it's still practicing medicine. So I did. I would never do medications across state lines. I don't want to see them in person. But right. therapy is very that you can definitely do. I've done that um, for people in Virginia, you know, further away. I've done Skype with them, and it's great. You're seeing their face, which is I the most important face. thing. I can see them from here up, and yeah. we have a great communication, and it works, it works great. So it's so frustrating that they are not going to do anything with a national license for easily nine years or so I mean, it's gonna be a while it'll I, I think it'll catch up eventually um I'm talking about governments here that's true <laughs> um one of the reasons i wanted to have you on uh a i love having psychiatrists on because um uh we, we have a lot of therapists on but it's also nice sometimes to get the medical mm-hmm. view on things and the biochemistry of the brain and, and, and those types of things. And the other reason is that I was reading some of your beliefs uh, and the dynamics that you work with and the type of people that you treat. And it's something I've been preaching for the longest time. Um, and you seem like somebody who understands the person as a whole more than just their brain chemistry. And yes. <laughs> so many psychiatrists, I think, don't understand the importance of therapy and emotions. I think they just want to change brain chemistry. So I'm very excited to talk to you. And mm-hmm. that's a long way of saying all you can do is let me down from here. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I appreciate the warning. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, the the most important thing that I read when I when I read um, about you, uh, and maybe you can put it in better terms than I can, but talk about the type of men that you uh, work with most frequently and the the area you focused your expertise on. Well, that was kind of a strange thing. <laughs> We've been surrounded by men, of course. My father right. was one. I'm married to one, ro- raised two. But all of a sudden I realized, okay, so I've been in practice for maybe 15, 16, 17 years, something like that. And my mentor said to me, so I was going to expand. And he said, well, it's best to look at who's already in your practice and just, you know, talk to them or get them. And I, he said, so you have mostly women, you know, eating disorders, all the stereotypical women issues. I said, no, I got professional men who have relationship problems. And he, he couldn't believe it. He wanted to write a paper on it, actually. It's, this is very unusual. Usually women have more women, men have more men. But what happened was I was the privacy MD first. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, that's a good question. I was a mom of two boys when I got out of um, residency. So and I knew I wanted to do mostly therapy, a little bit of medication, but... I wanted to work part-time, so I didn't work with insurance companies. It was just me and the answering machine. I didn't want to deal with any staff. And uh, so someone wrote an article on that. At the time, it was very unusual to not take insurance. She wrote an article on that called me the privacy MD. So I oh, I used that for the little advertising I did. And it meaning, turns, meaning their records couldn't be accessed. Well, you know, I also had a build. My build-out was circular, so no one would see anybody. You wouldn't know the, you wouldn't know in Virginia Beach, it's... A city, but it's small. You wouldn't know the receptionist. You wouldn't see anybody in the waiting room. I it see. was just me and my answering machine, and nothing, nobody else. But you, but they would see you in person. They would see me in person. And when you when you deal with insurance companies, you fax stuff. Mm. And guess what they always say? Oh, we didn't receive it. We don't know where that is. That's unnerving. <laughs> yes. You have to emphasize the negative to get them to pay. You have to say all the negative stuff, or they don't give you. Any sessions. And there it is on paper. And there it is on paper. It just makes me so uncomfortable. Plus, I had insane conversations and training with these people who didn't understand medicine and did, never saw the person. And I have to advocate to keep the person in the hospital. Because, well, they don't have hallucinations. They're not suicidal. I said, mm-hmm. But he's delusional. He thinks Madonna's going to come and buy him his groceries. He's, he can't take oh care of himself. God. Well, he's not deluded. He's, he's not having hallucinations and he's not suicidal. I'm like, listen to me. Do you mind if I take my shoes off? No, no. Go okay. Ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Make yourself comfortable <laughs> in your own office. <laughs> so, anyway, so it turns out these men who were professionals. You know, it, they were so embarrassed. This is what I started learning about them more. They were so embarrassed by this fact that they had emotional problems, well, more relationship problems, because everything in life came easy. They were the head, they were the golden boys. They could conquer everything. everything. They, were they just set gonna, a goal and they'd set out to achieve it. Yes, and I don't think many, and then I think back also about, I don't think men are raised to, I don't think we talk to our boys, our growing boys, the men, as what who are you going to marry, you know, all the talk that we have with the girls about it. Mm-hmm. So they thought, well, just when I want to get married, I'll get married. So here they are, late 30s, early 40s, not married, freaking out, but can't tell anybody because they're embarrassed. So that's who was flocking to my office. So that's how I got involved with treating men. Do you think part of the problem comes because um, boys aren't encouraged to talk about their feelings or even recognize them? 
Oh, see, that's my big thing. Cause it's not, we went through a whole phase and probably still going on talking about your feelings, talk about your feelings. It's not about talking about them, it's about understanding them. Sometimes it's not good to talk about them, or at least not to the person who angered you or upset you. Sometimes it's better to vent and you think, you know what, you know, I vented, it's, it's gone, it's done. But, um, so yes, we definitely do not raise our boys. Neediness, they, we just shame them out of neediness. We guilt them out of aggression. This is the big problem with schools. Sit still, sit in your chair. They take away recess in middle school. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I think that's when the kids, especially boys, a lot more aggression. Girls have aggression too. Boys have more. And they sublimate mm-hmm. it through um, playing, and especially out at recess with other boys, soccer, sports, things like that. And then you get to um, public high school and you can't be on a sports team unless you're really good. Give me, uh, give me an example of a typical, maybe can be an amalgamation of clients that, right. that you've had. Um, a typical, an example of a typical childhood, adolescence, success, and then hitting a wall. And hitting the wall. And, and then how you would work with them and, and what you would try to get them to. Well, the wall is typically, let's say, um, panic attack, something just completely they feel out of control. Business related, personal related, they both. They have no idea that they come in with that, let's just say. and um, So not necessarily about anything specific, just could be. Yeah, panic attacks are, they don't know where they're coming from. That's okay. part of the fear. Okay. They, they come out of nowhere. They don't really come out of nowhere, but they, they feel it comes out of nowhere. So it's always something like that very, um, or their wife is threatening to leave them or has left them. It's something very dramatic. They don't come in, I feel anxious. It's usually something that's driven them there. And then the very, and this is nothing to do, they can have panic attacks, they can be suicidal, and they are like top of the food chain at wherever they work. They're super, super successful, in part because I think they drive a lot of that emotion into, that becomes their outlet, the work. But it's not balanced with what's going on at home. So, Would it be fair to say that a fair amount of them then take that anxiety out on the people that work around them, or they're able to compartmentalize it? Oh, they're compartment. They're hiding it completely, at least from the people at work. Now at home, it starts to seep out, and that's where the relationship problem comes in. But we start with first the major issue okay. um, and then so as we get them comfortable the first step is like to get them comfortable with emotions because they just are they really truly think they are or can be robotic they've just completely pushed shoved aside their whole emotional world they have no they're so afraid of it they've just shoved it aside i very very much re- relate to that in it, therapy i would get so angry when my therapist would ask me what i'm feeling because <laughs> i didn't know yes i didn't have an answer my favorite answer is like, well i think it was wrong i don't think that was the right thing to do like that's a thought and they yeah. can't i said so I, I i have to give these very intelligent successful men a list okay here's some feeling words angry i mean i have to tell they have to pick one and they do the same thing they get mad about it it's because they just can't do it. So do, then, do you think that's a genetic thing with with men, or is it a no. cultural thing, or both? It's cultural and familial. Something in their family. At least every single example, they were raised in some kind of a situation where either their parents were afraid of emotions, so the, the message was clear: we do not deal with these. A lot of um, with anger. Oh, that's a less than emotion. You know. Come on, you can do better than that. We don't get angry, <laughs> that kind of thing. And the neediness is just 
I don't. That You're is, talking about healthy needs. Yeah, and well, all needs are healthy. <laughs> why? Why are you laughing when you said that? Because you made a distinction, which is just interesting. The well, psych brain doesn't stop. Let's, let, yeah, let's talk about that before we. Um, well, what about the, the the need of the serial killer to kill another person? That's sublimated from another need that didn't get met. Oh, okay. Yeah, need for closeness, need for something. See, any, emotions never go away ever if you bury them. That's why the Vietnam veterans are still angry, sad. They didn't get a chance to deal with them then. They come home. They don't want to deal with them. They just want to be happy. They don't know wants to hear about it, they think. And so, you know, 30 years later, they'll... 40 years later, they're coming in. Why do I still have these feelings? Why am I still upset about this? Because you have to process you have to process it. If you don't process it, it comes out sideways mm-hmm. and typically worse because it's been built up. Uh, so what were you saying before, right before I... So uh, either the families um, couldn't handle emotions and mm-hmm. just gave... It's, it's not a one-time thing. My, I tell my parents all the time, they're like, don't. it's not like you're going to make one mistake and then they're going to have this problem forever. It's a... They don't, the parents don't even know they have this message that they're giving. But it's a consistent, positive pressure, you know, don't show emotion. And they comply. When I have parents bring kids in who are acting up all over the place, I'm like, listen, that's way better than the kid who's not doing anything. That makes sense. Yeah, because they're at least, at least they're doing it. You can help rein them in. Society will help rein them in. But the kids who are showing nothing, how are you going to make them act up or get all that adolescent energy out. Is it, is it fair to say that then that is going to come out in either depression or substance abuse yes. or some type of compulsive behavior later in life? It would be my patient having a panic attack at 30 years old for whatever reason because <laughs> they buried it. And it oh, someone's going to see my anger. Someone's going to see my anger. And then I'm going to be typically the fantasies are going to be left. It's all unconscious. What are some of the other ways that buried emotion expresses itself other than anxiety? Oh, addiction? It's, it's Addiction definitely. is That's huge. That's a, Usually neediness is behind that. Sometimes anger. Both. Yeah. Do you so, believe that there's also a um, genetic uh, aspect to addiction? I do. There seems to be that compelling evidence for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe. I believe so. Because I've met yeah. people in my support groups who, um, at least to the best of their knowledge, were raised in happy, uh, healthy environments yeah most weren't but um <laughs> yeah but some some were yeah every once in a while and I, it's, it's it's so rare you know you can probably count it less on one and less than on five fingers but they have come from a healthy family or an expressive family and they somehow from somewhere else got the notion that if they were to express something they're going to be left and it could be a babysitter situation or a situation at school or camp is another one molestation something like that that they weren't able to tell their parents so yeah that happens once in a while um how many men what percentage of men do you see had had some type of uh, sexual uh, violation? Well, you know, I also do, um, for the Veterans Affairs Office, I see men who are leaving, and women, who are leaving the military, but it's mostly men. They have a, a much higher percentage. I don't know if they talk about it more um, than my patients. I've had my patients... If they have it, sexual molestation, they cannot. They the ones I've talked about, they won't go there. <laughs> They'll just know it was bad and was wrong, but it wasn't. They won't call it sexual um, abuse. I find in the people that I've talked to, um, men and women, um, most. I don't think I've ever met somebody 
that completely gives weight to what happened to them as full, full on trauma, full on abuse, violation, objectification, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call That's it. Exactly. Um, the women that serve in the military um, talk about the incidences of much more sexual harassment, sexual violation. Um, talk about that as a whole, the, the atmosphere in our military. I think yeah. most of us are aware that it's a problem, but tell us what we might not know about what goes on, what they go through, what are the hurdles they face, what are the things, the ripples that are left in the wake of their experience? Well, the, it's not just the women now. What happens is it's the whole military. It's become a, such a huge focus. They have courses and classes and on and on and on, but it's all women-based. They never say, at least the feedback I've gotten in the material I've read, because we have to go through that, some of that military sexual trauma training also, that they, they never say male or female. It's, it's always it's, female? It's all female-based. All of it. And that it angers me. This is me off to no end. This is discrimination. That's the realization I've come to over the past five years when I realized I mostly had men. There is definitely a male discrimination. How many men can say, I want to be a stay-at-home dad? It's more, maybe, but they don't say that. Well, I ended up being a stay-at-home dad, but nobody says that's what I aspire to be. A kindergarten teacher? How many? How many can say I was sexually abused by a babysitter? Female. Or male, but especially not a female. I created a, a whole survey for it because. Oh yeah, your survey. Yeah, because I s suddenly started hearing from so many people that they were violated by their female babysitter. Right. I was like, wow, this is I had no idea, and and then by female female caregivers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so go back to and talk about the military thing, then, including the the men. Yeah, so, um, well, so the the men the men who tell me is probably, a, oh, and they were raped by other men. Raped by other men. That's a very that's the most common. I'd say probably five percent of the men have told me about rape by other men. Not, nothing about other women doing something to them, but it was either uh, physical abuse or sexual abuse by other men. Women is much more like, I mean, maybe twenty five percent, some kind of sexual trauma from men not other women one one story i remember from women to women abuse but in my private practice i'd say it's much less like five percent of men say they've been sexually abused physically abused by parents is hmm. much more common but the sexual abuse do you think less. one of the reasons that that number is low is because most people don't consider what happened to them to be valid yes they don't even how do they even register it in their head so i don't hear about I mean, it i went 48 years without calling it what it what it was um yep. so what are the things that somebody in the military experiences that is unique to that situation what are help, help me well, and the listener understand what what a person in the military has to deal with on top of the trauma itself. Well, let's just say I also think that people going choose to go into the military a lot of times to help them bury Right, so rigid, and they're rewarded for being robotic. So I think un again, unconsciously, if they are ones who want to or think they need to bury emotions, they go into the military, and then the whole is just doubly bad because when if they have something that goes on, they can't report it, or if they do report it, it used to be that 
if their chain of command wasn't listening to them, they had no other recourse. You go above the chain of command, you break that chain of command, there'd be all kinds of punishments, um, you know, behind closed doors that would happen, making them do extra work, giving them a hard time. It's kind of the professional version of that parent who tells, you know, the little girl when she comes to her mom and says, you know, the neighbor touched me. Well, you know, why did you act like a slut? Exactly. What were you wearing? Right. You deserve it. And men get what? What do they say to men? They say, you're crazy. That couldn't have happened. That's the you got an erection. You know, yes. You're lucky to <laughs> have a hot woman, you know, take your virginity. Yeah. Don't even get me started. Yeah. Don't even get me started. Um, so back to the, mili- the military uh, thing. So, they, so it's they, unique. You have to chain a command, hitting a ceiling there, trying to trying to be heard. And then they just. St- they they have to stuff and move on. Oftentimes with these people in the same presence, oh, but they that won't has move to be them. Unbearable. It's, un- it's unbelievable, and, and everything is based on performance. So if you crack at all, there's a ding on your record. Or worse, they will say, oh, "Okay, well something happened, but you know, get over it." And then you know he's still there. And have you ever seen an instance where justice was served where that person's feelings and trauma was honored i hear that much more over the past three years where they say something and it's like a system goes right into place i mean that's good yeah oh they they get pulled in by the lawyers they get um go right to medical this guy gets taken away and talked to they go through the whole proceedings they get separated it's a much better system it's not perfect but it is they are paying attention I would imagine it is a difficult line to ride in training military people to pay attention to their feelings and find a healthy way to express it, but then be able to compartmentalize it when you have to go into battle. I would say, see, this is what I'm trying to say all along, my little voice, is that if you teach them how to deal with their emotions, they can better compartmentalize them because then they're not, it's not going to come up through the cracks like it is now in other words they would find a way you know when they come back from their tour of duty to decompress and and talk about it exactly so they're only temporarily compartmentalizing it they're not going to do it for the rest of their life it, exactly and this is a huge fear this is why men a lot of men don't come in and won't talk about it because they think as soon as i can get a grip on my emotions i'm going to lose my hard ass edge I, and i it takes me session after session. I, I promise you, I do not want to castrate you. I promise. You will still be able. You, it's like You'll be I, even more fully a man. Yes. That's my whole. Um, I actually have a book coming up, and it's called Strong Man, uh, Emotional Courage, Mental Weakness, and the Power to Know the Difference. Because what they're, they're, they're weakening themselves by not understanding a whole huge side of themselves. And, and I, I like the analogy of the general who calls in for reinforcements. That doesn't mean he's a weak general. He's a smart general. Exactly. He knows when he's outnumbered. Exactly, exactly. Um, any other things about the military uh, situation? That's good to, to know that in some places it's it's getting better. And for the women. For the women. The men, I have not heard one story where a man has reported be either physically or sexually abused and he's been paid attention to that that system doesn't go into play if it's a male mm. not that i've heard uh for any men out there who um have experienced sexual trauma either as children or adults a great website is one in org. that's uh the the number one in number six uh dot org 
Um, so let's let's go back to unless there was anything more on the military that that you wanted to uh, to touch on. That no, she, I okay. think about it. Uh, so let's go back to that uh, stereotypical example of a of a client you had. So he comes in, he's having panic attacks. He doesn't even know what he's he's feeling. Um, what do you do? You then start to ask about uh, his childhood. Where do where do you begin? Well, it depends. You know, I let them go where they want to go. You know, I don't try to. Um, you learn the order of things in medical school and residency, but I just let them talk because that's what they're ready to deal with. So if they start talking about the panic attack and they I have no idea where it came from, I usually go right before the panic attack. And they always, always, nothing happened. There was nothing. Nothing was going on. There's nothing. <laughs> so I can tell they're protecting that. So I, we go, I go, right, okay, well, there was something. You were, you were doing something. Oh, I was just, here's an example from um, somebody. Said, oh, I was just in the parking lot. I was, um, you know, just going to the CVS to get something, a drugstore to get something. I said, okay, well, what happened in the parking lot? Oh, I was just parking the car, and it's no big deal, nothing really. I mean, well, there was the woman who hit my car, but, you know, it was just nothing, really. It was just a tiny little, she just nicked it with getting out, opening a car door. Well, tell me about the woman. She was old, this, on on they go. And it turns out this woman dinged the car. He became furious, reminded him of his mom, who would come in his room, move all his stuff. He was furious, but she was this old lady, really old, and he, he felt so guilty, shoved it down, had the panic attack. The panic attack is always anger, guilt. Um, punishment is coming because I'm such a bad person and then they have the panic attack. Mm. But to get them to that is takes some effort. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other stereotype that I see as damaging in the uh, mother-son relationship is the uh, stereotype of the uh, female as um, fragile. Yes. Yeah. And which I think then mothers who tend to be narcissistic or manipulative will use that um, to control the emotions of uh, children, especially, I think, especially sons. You mean like the crying or them hurt, the, you hurt yes, me? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And make it about their feelings and the, you know, and the, the boy believes I have to protect my mom and, and the, the girl too, but I, I mostly see it with boys because we don't know what it's like to be a girl. A girl. So Well, that's the guilting of the aggression. You hurt me. Like he might say, oh, you know, I don't know. I, I hate you for saying that. Or, well, what the heck did you say? Some, some verbal aggression. The mother does that. That's right there. Mm -hmm. That's when they start learning. Oh, my God, I can hurt people and push them away. I better bury my aggression or my anger. That's why I try to, you know, the whole adolescence thing, when you realize your parents are, you know, um, not going to be able to be your everything anymore and they're all flawed and they get angry. It's like, just let them, let them. I mean, I have so many parents. Like, he stomped up the stairs, so I told him, you're not going to be able to do X. Or something. I'm like, don't let him stomp up the stairs. Let him slam the door. That's all good aggression. I mean, that's fine. If he's not threatening you physically, then just let him have it. can't imagine how difficult and triggering that's got to be to be a parent, especially if you don't understand what emotional health is. It yeah, that, well, that's, it's always a chain reaction back to their parents did something to them. And it's so, you know, I do have a lot of empathy for, you know, it's not like the, the people always say, we don't want to blame the parents. I'm not blaming the parents. I'm trying to understand what happened. This is about understanding. No one's blaming because I already know they have some story from their childhood of something just it's as bad. It's usually worse. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, 
so you, you get this guy to start opening up. He has something happened, reminded him of his sublimated anger with his or his buried anger and towards then it's his like, mom. So what's wrong with being angry at an old lady? Yeah. That's we start going down that. I try to normalize. What? What? Oh my god! I'm, I wasn't angry. I wasn't angry. They start minimizing, and he had to do that over and over. So they start getting comfortable with their emotions. Then we start going. Where did this come from? Where did this fear of your being angry come from? And then the story of whatever from childhood we go through that it's always something there and then and then what happens how do you get them to uh, work through or embrace or process that what do you what do well, you do we do it so much they just start picking up on it which is the then they so they get start getting comfortable with their emotions i just had i just had somebody describe it so beautifully he said i was down in the weeds because if you i couldn't see my emotion i'm so afraid of them it was just like Everything was right here, and I didn't want to see. He goes, you lift me up by the scruff of the neck so I could see, oh, that that's what I'm looking at. You told me there's a bigger picture here. And now he goes, I can see my emotions, and I think, this is cool. What's this about? So they have an interest in their emotions. Yeah, that's that's gold. And, 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 and a separation from... Yes, because they what they're, they would, they're not what they're feeling. Yeah, well, they're not what they're feeling, and they don't have to act out on it. They have feelings and anger. When I say something about anger, oh, I'm not an angry person. Yeah, we're uh, not saying uh, you're an angry person. Exactly. You're saying you experienced you're anger. You're feeling angry. Or, yeah. or I don't want to hurt anybody. Well, feeling angry and hurting somebody, that's a huge ocean of gray between there. And they're like, they've done this. So I pull them up and they see, okay, I can feel something and they, I can figure it out. Sit here and figure it out. Sit with your emotions, figure it out. So they, that's the next step. And then they start putting it together themselves. That's the final step. They'll come in and go, you're not going to believe what I did today. <laughs> and they'll spell it all out for me. So What's that feel like on your end? I can't describe it. I, I told someone once, I've never won the lottery, but I can't feel any better than that. I'm going to get misty now. It's like, I, I can't believe I get paid to do this. Some rock star once said that, and I feel like that. It's like, this is, and I, my mentor also says, how, where else can you talk about sexual and violent fantasies and get paid for it? <laughs> <laughs> it's the best, it's the best job. I feel, even though I'm not a, a therapist, uh, I feel like that doing this show because I get, um, people to open up yeah and it's it's the most amazing feeling in the world to have somebody put their soul out on the table and say i trust you i trust you i trust you with this and you if you just haven't figured out one thing one thing they've never seen before that's you just taught them that one thing that can then has a, you know, has a carryover effect. Oh, it's just unbelievable. You're my first crying psychiatrist. <laughs> Sorry. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I love oh, it. Appreciate that. <laughs> my patients have seen it. They'll sometimes say, are you tearing up, Dr. Dad? I mean, like, yeah, it's amazing that you finally put all that together. I mean, it's just, um, they come so broken and it takes a long time. I, you know, I also appreciate the time, the money, the expense that people put into helping themselves, and they come back even though we have a lot of frustrations and get roadblocks, and and they keep doing it. So it's amazing. I keep saying that I I, I want to write to Fortune magazine and say when you interview that billionaire CEO. Also include a pop quiz and ask him about his kids. Yeah. Ask him to name five of five of their friends. Yeah. Who their favorite band is. Exactly. What's the predominant emotion they feel 
at school on a given day. Yeah, that's the problem. Men feel like they can't do it all. We, as women feel like they have it all and everything. And the, the, the man bashing thing, God, I, I, I'd love to know how you felt about that. But that whole phase, I think it's, I think we're coming out of it, but the everyone loves Raymond show and Malcolm in the middle. Oh, where, where the dads are always dumb. They're idiots and the wife is telling him what to do. And, uh, you know, that's no way to get equal. I think it needed to happen because there was so much repressed anger at the patriarchy, white, uh, white patriarchy. Um, but... I, I, it feels like it's uh, we, we've moved to a different a different place down. now. Um, but more than anything, to me, it just becomes artistically boring when when it's, it's, it's too much so of stereotype. too much of the same thing. But when The Simpsons came out, I fucking loved yes. it because it was like, yeah, yeah, it it we needed that portrayal. It, it was of a, it was new. The selfish, thought. dumb. Emotionally ignorant uh, dad. Oh, I suppose uh, All in the Family was the first really great one yeah. at uh, satirizing the uh, incompetent, exactly. emotionally ignorant dad. Uh, what are what are some other issues? Or l- let's go back to that stereotypical example of a guy. So okay. then he begins to understand what it is he's feeling. Um, I imagine he begins to learn how to set boundaries. Oh, boundary setting is another one that shocked me. I mean, I, I knew that the repressed feelings and all that, but the, that they didn't know how to set boundaries because you need, I got this whole constructive aggression thing. They, because they've vilified anger, then anything to do with aggression at all gets vilified. I'm like, but what about constructive aggression? It's not all destructive aggression. Going for a gold medal takes a lot of um, aggression. aggression yeah. yeah. So they start, everything just gets piled onto that, and we have to tease all that out, and setting boundaries is constructive aggression. You have to be able to say, okay, this isn't working for me. I've got to set up a boundary here. I had one guy for six months, he was a very successful, set up these small chain grocery stores. And uh, he was 40, not married, feeling desperate. I want to have kids one day. I want to get married. And so I told him about boundaries, much, much, much other things. He was pretty quick. It was six months. And then he, when he left, he said, I would have dropped a, I would have dropped $10,000 in your lap just to teach me about boundaries. Wow. Because I had no idea. He had no idea. It changed his life. It, boundaries are, I think they are impossible to learn without either having them modeled for you or having them pounded into your head or by a support group or a therapist or a mentor or, or somebody. Because I think the, the, I'll speak for myself personally. I could, I could learn that I'm supposed to set a boundary here, but that doesn't get me through the terror right. of hurting somebody or looking selfish. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's what we have to walk them through. We walk, we will go through examples and they'll go, okay, I'm ready. And they'll go out. They can't do it. They'll come back. I didn't do it, Dr. That's fine. You'll get there. So it's that walking them through, going through the scenarios, just play out. And every time, if you have a problem with anger, you think someone's going to be furious with you if you set a boundary or say that doesn't work for me. And they have all these, I know what she's going to say. I know what she's going to say. Like You don't know what she's going to say. You don't. And I've never had a case where she yes. said that. And isn't the, the importance of setting a boundary is that it doesn't matter what that other person says it's, because you're taking care of yourself. And it's part of test. If you set a boundary and that person's emotionally healthy, they're going to say, oh, okay, I, I got it. 
thanks for letting me know. But if they start well, you know, shaming you for it, like, that's yeah. someone you need to even set a bigger boundary with. Right. You get that person out of your life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I always say uh, to, to people that want to um, change therapists, if your therapist gives you a hard time <laughs> about leaving them, that's even more proof that you should be leaving them. Then you really know you did the right thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, what other things do you work on with the stereotypical case of the successful male well here's the so there's the two main problems with these men that come in with emotional problem relationship problems is the emotional piece we just talked about anger neediness being the two biggest toughest emotions for them but there's another whole set of problems which we unfortunately call personality disorders which is a difficulty getting close and distancing so what they're doing is they're always so here's most people get close and distance and close and distance and it's natural. But these people wing around in the middle. They can't get too close because they feel like they're being taken over and they can't get too far. They feel like they're being abandoned. So these are the men who serial dating. It sounds, it sounds like a mini version of borderline personality well, disorder. Bo- well, it, it, all the personality disorders are, you know, they have these classifications, but they're all centered. That's the main part of all personality disorders right there. And, um, or someone who's married and cheating, or there's always some back door they have, you know. So that's a whole different ball game that then we have to develop intimacy so they can see that you can have intimacy without being taken over, and we can, you can leave, and I won't punish you for it. You can come back if you need to. So it's uh, playing it out. I can't explain it to them. I just have to prove to them that their therapy and your relationship with the therapist becomes a template for a healthy relationship exactly. boundaries needs expressing yes. yourself trusting mm-hmm. all that how many clients what percentage of clients where you are their first therapy experience what percentage of them think that when you say nice things to them you're just saying it because they're paying you <laughs> yes um all of them maybe 75 percent okay yeah, a lot. And typically, does that go away? Yes. Over over time, it always does. Yeah. What What is it that gets that to go away? It's this this experience I was telling you the um, it's the ability for me to tolerate because they of course had somebody close to them who couldn't tolerate and still can't a lot of times. A lot of these people are have have one foot in their parental home. They have, the mother needs something. I got to run over there and do it every holiday. We got to go home, and then their wives are getting sick of it. Um, so they have one foot in with. Their, it's like they're cheating on their spouse with their mother, and sometimes mother and father. Um, so what was, what was the question? <laughs> what was the um, how how long does it take for oh. them to be able to to trust yeah. you and believe that you, you're not just doing that because you're paying them? It takes. Uh, it usually takes. It's like three months is when the we get the emotions to die down. The trust comes between six months and a year. And it, as a result of them bit by bit experimenting with the things you've suggested for them to try or from them just repetitively <laughs> seeing you be present with them and not judge them? It's just coming in. I'm there. I'm, 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 I'm always there. I'm, I'm like a stickler about I, I could be sick. I could be anything. I'm there. Um and they can come and go, and I'm stable, and I don't take them over. I don't ever give exercises because taking them over. I don't. 
offer, even if they ask, I'm very reluctant to do that because I don't want them to think, well, I'm home and I've got to do what Dr. Dabney said or she's me mad. So it's just a, it's just presence. Sometimes they'll say, I don't know what, what I'm doing here. And I said, you're getting better just by sitting here, just showing up. And it's true. It, you, you do feel better. That that first therapy appointment that you make. Yeah, well, that's a huge. Even though it's terrifying. It, yeah. it can be just that act is almost like that, you know, when that person's in in the movie where they're frozen into a statue yeah. <laughs> and they slowly crack out of that that ice you can see that too it's yeah. happening and by the end they're so relieved i didn't criticize them that's a taking over or i didn't just not say anything that's the other that's the two biggest fears give me an example of a of a client who got angry at you who who's Anger came out, and it just happened to be directed at you because it was there in therapy. I would imagine that happens. Oh, yeah, that happens. Um, Actually, I hope it happens. Sometimes they come back and tell me. I had one page that kept coming back and saying, well, two sessions ago, when you did acts, I got mad. (laughs) So his big goal was to try to tell me in real time. And when I moved offices, when I expanded, I moved. That was about three years ago. And this one page, dude, got really bad. You could be just like the rest of them. Being a receptionist, well, you're changing, which is leaving. I said, I'm going to have a reception now for the first time, you know, so it's not as intimate. And um, he got up and he tried to stay in the door, but I have these, um, I have a sort of uh, special doors because of the soundproofing. (laughs) He couldn't slam it. He could make it. I am so pissed. I couldn't slam your door. (laughs) Was he able (laughs) to laugh about it in hindsight? We still laugh about it in hindsight, actually. He's still with me. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Talk about uh, transference. Yeah, transference is tricky because it's transference and countertransference. So, explain to the listener both of them. Well, transference is what they feel about me, and countertransference is what I feel about them. What they feel about me, filtering it through <laughs> their own issues. Yes, transference. Ideally, countertransference is when I feel something about somebody. It's a clue. If something's going on in you or them, uh, both. So they typically they're trying to. So for instance, if I'm getting bored, uh, I have one patient in particular that goes on about details, details, details. It's a way for him to hide. So I have to when he takes a breath, go back to okay. You were talking about this incident with somebody at work, and you sound like you had an emotion about it, but now you're filling me with all these details. So. If you, the idea is that so people say as therapists are so quiet, it's because we're thinking. What feeling am I having, and what clue is that giving me about what you're doing? So that's the ultimate. When the patient has a transference, if they can tell me, that gives me a lot of information, but that takes the six months to a year to have the trust to be able to tell me, you just pissed me off. You sounds like my mother when you said that, you're telling me what to do and how to do it. <laughs> but it gives us, we move a lot faster when they can do that. Those, those The awkward moments in therapy for me, have been the most fruitful. Well, I used to have a hard time. I, I think every new therapist starts with the awkwardness of therapy, and now those moments don't bother me at all. I'm just waiting. <laughs> and, and, and jewels come out after that. Talk to the person who is thinking about going to therapy and is afraid that they're going to be judged, oh. they're going to be told they're a terrible person, or they think that if they share their deepest, darkest secrets, they're going to be considered a monster. We won't. We won't. We don't. It's so hard to get them to, no matter how much I advertise or try to, now I do webinars to get them to mm-hmm. see me beforehand um, so they can 
start getting a sense of me because it's always from somebody else. You know, it's always from some other adult in their life that did They're that to them. them. Yeah, and they think they put it on me. So it, it's try to be as gentle as possible, but they inevitably you're going to think that at some point that part of me is going to come up. What are some things that people don't understand about being a psychiatrist? Well, a lot of people think we can read minds. I mean, seriously, I've had people ask me that. And um, Daryl and I have a lot of stories about... Daryl's her uh, her husband. Uh, right. Who, when we go to some function or some event, we'd love to see, they're talking to me, we're talking. They go, so what do you do? I'm a psychiatrist. And then they shut down. Oh, my God. And they start backing up. And like, what did I say? What did I say? <laughs> so, you know, people say... She knows my fetish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't she read your mind. She can tell by, by the drink I ordered. <laughs> I like shoes. <laughs> and are you always are you always analyzing? I don't even know how to answer that because analyzing is a two way street. Okay, it's not a one way. I cannot analyze you. You would have to give me feedback. So if I said, "Well, that you know that sounds a lot like what you said last week about your father letting you down," you're like, oh no, that's not what it is. I know what it is. It's because my brother did this to me. And that's what, oh, okay, that's what it is. So it's me putting an idea out, but that has to be confirmed or denied. That's analyzing. So I'm at a party. I'm not doing that, but no one believes me. <laughs> it, it, it's almost like improvisation. Um, like you, there has yeah. to be a, a listening and a reacting. Yes. It's not, you can't force your, your own preconceived idea of what, um, the process is going to look like. Right. I don't construct it and then put it on you. You discover I, it together. Yeah, we make it together. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, talk more about the, the issues of the um, highly successful uh, male who has an emptiness inside him personally. Well, it's either... it's. I told you about the two main problems, the bearing of the anger, the bearing of the neediness, um, and then this personality disorder or traits. Oh, yeah. We started to talk about that, and then we got right, off Where they can't get close and can't get far and can't get close and can't get far, and it's usually both of those are in there. So it's, it's a way... F- so therapy is a way to get you to understand all that. And when you start understanding this, the emptiness, that fear, the... I always have patients say it's, everything slows down. There's, um, who is that um, astrophysicist, Neil Tyson, mm-hmm. the stargaze guy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think every time I hear him talk, because he is fascinating, like this is the universe, the, right between your ears that we don't understand. That's where all the amazing stuff is. That is too. <laughs> mm-hmm. But this is where once you can get this down and feel comfortable in here, all those things melt away. The problems they didn't even know they had to start getting better. It's just it's that spider web effect where just their lives become not perfect, but better. Everything is better, and all that understanding. And and I think decisions become simpler because you understand the prism through which you you've been filtering reality. Yeah, exactly. Everything's you. you so when that's another patient says, my uh, lenses of my glasses tilted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's all just a little bit different. Instead of it being so fast that I can't process, I can go, okay, I know what that is, and I know what that is, and I know what I'm going to do now. 
do you ever talk about a spiritual, and I don't mean religious, but a spiritual component with with any of your clients? If they do, I do. I don't ever, I don't introduce, I try not to introduce anything. In that term, a blank slate, not that I don't talk, but mm-hmm. that I try to let them bring in their experiences. Um, and, and when I say spirituality, I mean... Um, altruism, volunteer work. Um, it, it could be being a part of a support group and mentoring other people. I think there's a gazillion different ways it, it could be. Um, being connected to a larger good. A larger good, Yeah, yes. we talk about that a lot. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people use that as another defense. They're so busy helping others, pathological altruism, yes. that they, because, oh, I don't need anything. I'm everybody's rock. I can't even have time to be sad. The people come to me and they need my help. They can't see me crack. <laughs> That's a very common thing. So unfortunately, sometimes we have to roll that back until they get it straight. <laughs> and and how do you how do you work with that uh, person? Stop get- doing good. <laughs> it's kind of hard. <laughs> I would imagine every person that is like that struggles with setting boundaries yes they do they do because everybody they say yes to everybody and they just feel so that their whole identity gets wrapped around saying yes do you think that type of person uh, as a child was uh a became a caretaker for their caretaker or had an addictive that's a big part of it um parents who uh get lazy and they put that child in charge or they go with talk to uh, this patient, uh, the mother used to go visit the boyfriend, 13 years old. She was left with, you know, a 10-year-old and a 9-year-old. She had to make do. And what they do is they, um, what's the word, they whitewash it. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I'm so good at this. Oh, I'm just another adult. She must be so, my mom must be feel so, think so highly of me that I can do this. And so it's, it's, it's really popping that bubble for them when I say that you were abused. Yeah. <laughs> Neglect it- is abuse. I I never realized that until I got into therapy that it wasn't cool that I was my mom's confident about her marriage at seven. The parents who split and talk to you know that is so abusive. It's awful, awful, and they yeah. So they become the um, the little man or the surrogate Mm. husband. Yeah, and a great book. I know I'm sure you're familiar with it, but to anybody out there, if this is ringing their bell, is called "Silently Seduced" by uh, Ken Adams, and mm-hmm. that book changed my changed my life. Yeah. Um, what were we talking about right uh, right before that? Um, you're talking about the universe. We have the universe getting the guy <laughs> to understand the, the the person who can't get too close, um, but too doesn't want to be abandoned. That's the toughest to cure. That's the takes the longest that one right there the closeness and distancing thing and and how do you what is the goal that they learn is the balance between boundaries and intimacy well the boundaries exactly boundaries and intimacy learning that intimacy they have to push themselves to get closer to somebody to see that they're not going to be taken over they've that's another way they protect themselves by saying if your mom took you over um, well every Every maybe every woman or everybody, every woman does that. That's what they do. You know that gets your mom off the hook. Not as painful to see that's your mom. So they'll carry that through, and they really have to. It's just like um, I compare it to turning the light off when when you're a kid and you're afraid of the dark. You have to sometimes just push it to see mm-hmm. that's not going to happen with everybody. But then they have the grief 
that, oh, my parent was screwed up. It isn't all women's. We have to go through a lot of times this this repressed grief. They'll cry on the couch for um, two months sometimes Mm -hmm. just to get over that. Yeah, it bums me out when I hear um, both sexes do it, but but particularly men um, talk about women in in this monolithic, nagging... um, uh, it's yeah, and it bothers me when I hear women you know talk about men as being irresponsible and insensitive, and yeah, I know there's a lot uh that are that are both ways, but um, I don't know, it just irks me, yeah well any any long standing stereotype like that bothers me it's like give her give her a chance to react, don't just assume, but that assuming is the way they don't have to say it. And they, yes, they don't have to say it, and they don't have to have needs. Don't have to have needs. Don't have to say the need. Um, this is what I see in a lot of couples: is the um, the man, and I don't say this as much with women. It probably happens too, but the man doesn't get enough sex and can't say it. Like, okay, so this is you've been with your wife for twenty five years. You don't have enough intimacy, and you cannot say to her, "I need more intimacy. Need more intimate time." <laughs> oh my god oh my god this is the pornography the addiction from, comes from that a lot of time like, it's amazing to me they make up this whole story in their head and they're so convinced she's going to get mad and this and that like, well, even if she did you're getting it out on the table that's the point you're, you're speaking your truth and it's up truth. to her what to do with that truth right and we go through the different steps okay let's say she does yell at you I'm sorry we don't see, see eye to eye on this Looks like you need a break. <laughs> we'll touch back. Don't give it up. Do you, Do you think that that might be a um, influenced by our culture of winning? That hmm. that that if I'm going to put this out on the table, you know, it gets rejected. That's that's a loss. That I'm gonna I'm gonna feel stupid. Oh, I well, I just had someone say this like that, and that's kind of a new way for me to think of it. I, I asked her. It was a female. I said, Why do you why do you keep saying, oh, what was it? She criticized and criticized. Because I, I finally said, you're criticizing. You're not. Oh, that's the other thing I'm going to say. Ask for what you need. They go, I, I ask what I need all the time. I said, well, how do you ask? <laughs> and what they're doing is they criticize. You don't ever. You don't ever. You don't ever. I said, that's not the same. You're skipping over your needs by doing that. And you're driving him away because you're criticizing him. And that's news for them. So I always give them a template. So, you know, I feeling cause i feel this when you do that or i need this not you must give me that so that's a big and it's so hard when you first start doing that because at least for me Mm -hmm. i felt rage underneath Mm. it rage underneath it and i felt like such a wimp (sighs) expressing it gently and calmly and coolly when what i really wanted to do was scream and then I eventually began to realize this is all of that anger that I compartmentalized as a kid that I really wanted to scream at my mom. Exactly. Exactly. It's that old. That's a lot of the um, other pathology that people have. It's because they're remembering a fear. Let's say, let's say a need that they didn't get met by their mom. Well, it is scary if you don't have someone feeding you. You you don't have any options, but they're remembering it as if they're five, six, seven. They're their adult side that can get in the car and drive to Wawa. They can do that, but they're not, they're thinking of the fear still there from when they were little. I uh, find myself regressing um, temporarily Mm -hmm. all the time. 
especially when the subject of trauma or I get triggered by something mm-hmm. and I swear to God, I feel like I'm 11 years old again and I want my mommy. And it's it's kind of embarrassing, oh. but, um, but it's also kind of nice to be honest and go, okay, I'm feeling like an 11-year-old boy um, who's very sad and lonely and wants his mommy. Who wants the, the mommy he wants to have. Yes. Not yours. No, not, <laughs> not. And that's what they, they, they long for. They almost have to grieve the mom they wished for. I had to. It's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, so that does happen a lot. But, but everybody feel, does that. But then I feel creepy because I want a woman who's not my mom to be my mom. And that and that and I know that's a fantasy, but it's um I don't know, it's just normal. <laughs> Everybody does that. Everybody has that regression, that wish, those type of It just feels feelings. so sad. It feels so Well, the sadness right it comes behind it. But and that's very good. It feels too. pathetic, I guess. Is oh, yeah, in not, in, yeah, in that put, moment it feels pathetic. I can Sitting here talking to you now, I can have empathy mm-hmm. for myself mm-hmm. once I come out of that. But in that moment, it's like the world stops and I just want to be held. I just want to cry. I just want um, whatever it, it would have felt like to have as a kid. I don't know. Yeah. In many ways, it's the absence. It's like you're feeling not what fills the mold, but the mold waiting to be filled. Yeah, and that's all you can feel is that void like negative space yeah 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 but then you put just a tiny bit of a negative on that when it's really nothing negative about that at all and and self-care does does help Mm -hmm. um talk about self-care well tell me what you mean by self-care um doing good things healthy things for for yourself um learning to i hate the term but self-parent yeah um what are what are your thoughts on well, so back to the um, difficulty with closeness and distancing okay. that, that the people with personality disorders have. That be, the ability to say, well, I can handle this temporarily while she's gone. Mm-hmm. She hasn't abandoned me. I'm not going to fall apart. Or she has left me, but I'm not going to fall apart. I can handle this. So that self-care is very important to get them comfortable with that side. Just like the intimacy and she's not going to take me over and get in my head and tell me what to do all the time. Or if she does, I don't have to listen and set boundaries. So those two things are very important to learn. So it sounds like the black and white thinking thinking is either abandonment or being devoured. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. And they just flip between those. And they're just always trying to stay away from either one. But then they don't get into a serious relationship that were long enough to have the kids or the family they want. Why, why is gray area so hard for us? That's a good question. And it's, it's very hard for it. It becomes it's a it's a defense it's a protection it's a way to simplify it to understand it to not feel making it, it black and white making it black and white so, yeah so it's that if i know right away because you're wearing a green shirt you're that kind of person well then i'll never get hurt what i keep trying to teach people is you are going to get hurt but you can handle it it's not about avoiding hurt it's impossible good luck yeah <laughs> good, good luck good luck You'll yeah, and I suppose it. relationships wouldn't be as satisfying if there wasn't the risk of being hurt. Yeah, but it, 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 you're, it's a fantasy that you can protect yourself from being hurt. That's 
all that is. All, the, all those defenses are just, it's like, um, it's like I'm not going to walk under a ladder, so it's, I'm going to have a good day. <laughs> Nothing, you, no matter what you say or do now, you, you're not going to know what's going to happen five minutes, ten minutes, ten days. You're going to get hurt. <laughs> you can handle it. You're not five, six, seven now. You have all those adult capacities to handle it. So in, in, instead of spending your time ruminating about how much it's going to hurt, go out and learn some tools to deal with it when you do feel they're hurt. Exactly. Or instead of pretending that you count to three or five or ten, you're not going to get hurt that day. <laughs> Just do what you want to do. Live your life. Um, so back to self-care, unless there was more you wanted to talk about with uh, the push-pull between abandonment and... Um, devoured, I like that. Devoured. <laughs> that's that's a, a term my therapist used okay. uh, to, to describe my relationship with my mom, and that mm-hmm. made a lot of sense to me. And most of it um, came through the way that she would look at me. She would drink me in with her eyes. Mm-hmm. I never saw her touch or look at my father with one one thousandth the um i don't know what the word is to describe it um somewhere between love and desire well you she probably saw you as an extension of her yeah which is a very common problem you know where the parent doesn't can't see the child as a separate human being with its own likes and dislikes and thoughts and feelings and all that. So they, you're just a little mini me. Mm-hmm. So she, the narcissist will think, ah, oh, there's a mirror. Aren't I fabulous? Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible for the kid, obviously. Um, so the gray is, is, is difficult. It's easier to think black and white to protect ourselves. Right. Um, what, what else? With, the black and whites or the getting close and distancing close and distancing it's you know this is what's really sad and you you clearly had a great therapist or um but a lot of therapists will tell people that personality disorders aren't treatable and that's where you know uh, it's okay so it's not treatable you you started with talking about psychiatrists and um it's manageable the about that stuff. but a lot of it's insurance companies we don't the, the psychiatrists don't get paid to do the therapy so that's how it got off the radar for a lot of them. Meaning you had to classify it as personality disorder for it to be covered by insurance? No. To cure a personality disorder takes a lot of time and a lot of therapy. Insurance companies will not give oh, that to I you. See. They determine it's not treatable because they didn't want to pay for it. I'm having a hard time believing that a personality disorder is treatable. I, I believe it could be managed, but treatable? Where it's it treatable. Va- where it vanishes? That's what, that's what we've been talking about, right? The devoured, getting used to closeness, getting used to distancing. But I didn't view that as a personality disorder. I viewed that as an issue. It's personality disorder traits. It's a personality disorder. It's what we classify as personality disorder. So this borderline personality disorder, the narcissistic personality disorder, if you had that as a parent, you probably have the, you developed the traits. doesn't mean you have the full disorder. But that inability to go back and forth, that is treatable. Now, that, that I understand, but uh, like full-blown classic. Okay. Now we're getting into semantics. Okay. A lot of mental health workers have the bad borderlines are really psychotic. Mm-hmm. They can't get in touch with reality. It's not the hallucination type of psychotic, but they can't keep hold of reality. So they're much sicker, and that isn't treatable by therapy. That's a medication issue. The, 
there are some personality disorders that are treatable if they've got enough warmth that they're more the traits than the full-blown thing. I see. But most psychiatrists don't make that distinction. It's just personality disorders, not treatable, which insurance has helped make that a reality. So, but I have people coming to me who can do the closest and distancing to a degree. They can get themselves in. They can. They have the money and the time, the capacity to come three, four times a week. I have somebody who comes five times a week. Wow! Because they need to get that um, closeness and distancing down, and then it's definitely treatable. So it sounds like what you're saying is there's a continuum of intensity yes. with personality disorders yes. and those on the, the lower to middle end of that continu- continuum um, enough progress can be made that it kind of it takes a long time is it something that then just kind of becomes dormant or is gone it's gone they learned that intimacy is not to de- you don't be devoured they learned abandonment distancing is not abandonment and they can handle those situations and they slowly they I have one um, professional man who um He's a very impoverished background, a lot of neglect. They were there, both parents, married, no abuse, no substance abuse, no physical abuse. He did have the, um, it was a maid who um, sexually abused him. We had to go through all that. But he wanted to get married more than anything, and he got married. And uh, they're trying to have a kid now. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And did he have to work through... Um, his his fear of performance be- because of what the maid did. What what what? Well, did he's affect? he's one of the ones who just couldn't call it that. It couldn't call it that. I I said the word one day, and he just the phrase, and he said, "I can't. I just I can't go there." Can't How old it. was he? If I can ask. Uh, when he had the abuse, yeah, it was twelve. And so, I imagine he black and whited it. And and said that I was lucky to lose my virginity? Or no, what? no, no. Well, he what? didn't lose his virginity. She was all touched. She exposed herself. She was older. She was 16 or 18. He's a Middle Eastern man. Mm-hmm. So it was in that country. And um, she exposed herself. She touched him, encouraged him to touch her. And then um, one of the neighbors saw through the window. They lived in an apartment building and told the mom the maid disappeared. No one talked about it. And he just couldn't, he minimized it. No big deal, it's not a big deal, not a big deal. And we had a hard time getting to how that was impacting his view of women, his view of his own sexuality, um, pleasure. What what were the the hurdles within those things? What were the, the, the thoughts that he... Well, all women were going to objectify him. wasn't just this maid. Um, he liked it. He felt guilty. We had to work through that. Um, does pleasure have to come? Is it going to come out of the blue like that? He kept waiting for a woman to appear. <laughs> and we had to go back. Like, no, that's not how it works. You don't have to just wait for something. You can go get use your constructive aggression. He was afraid. Was he going to hurt her? Um, he was felt guilty that the mom fired her. Did he ruin her life? I mean, mm. it. it went on for a long time all the diff- spin-offs but not he wouldn't say well, how do i feel about being sexually abused we couldn't i couldn't even use the phrase and did he eventually get to a place where he could get in touch with what that primary emotion was um the one with the sexual abuse you mean yeah. no he never got to that we got all we went all around it um he did uh way much later so after we put 
all that to bed. <laughs> we went through a, he went through a grieving process with his dad. And um, his dad he wasn't the man he he wished he had been. He went through all, I mean, he was crying, crying, sobbing. And he, up came the, he wished the whole situation with the maid were different. He wished he hadn't been, he didn't say abused, but mistreated. And that's as close as we got. Mm. Better than better than nothing oh yeah and i mean i I think it was enough because again he was able to um date a woman for a long period of time and got married so and would you say that at that point not calling it abuse but calling it mistreated is really just a matter of semantics and enough healing was done yeah it was just it's like it was we talked about this a little bit too he wouldn't let me have the word wouldn't let me have it my way Mm -hmm. it had to be his way because he didn't want me to abuse him. So um, it was in part his way of protecting, wasn't quite abuse, couldn't admit that his parents set him up for that. They hired her, um, wouldn't comfort him through that. So it was a semantic thing that protected him a little bit from some fantasy he had about the difference between abuse and mistreatment. Yeah. Mm. Um, what else were we talking about be, uh, before we started talking about that, that per- <laughs> we're talking can they be cured yes personality disorders yes. and these traits but definitely there are some there are definitely people who can I, be fixed uh i know what i wanted to to ask um how about mood disorders can they ever uh disappear oh yeah i mean that's that's the whole the bearing of the um the repressed emotions the anger the neediness they're quicker much easier to get and let's see this all depends on the person now so there's this other when we do when i do an assessment it's about does somebody have the five traits empathy warmth stability you know all these traits to have this you know do they have the core pieces to do this if they don't i can't fix anything because the relationship isn't going to that they they can't do the relationship it all is based on the relationship between client and therapist yes and so then that's when they either can do what i do which is dynamic therapy based on analytic therapy or they have to do the cognitive behavioral therapy which is the homework and the Mm -hmm. that kind of thing now in all of these cases that you've talked about were you acting as a therapist or psychiatrist or both um (laughs) well yeah some yes i'm therapist i guess so you'd say yeah okay i mean i the medications i actually help a lot of people get off medication people come to me because (laughs) So we're talking now about the general practitioners who don't get enough training to know, can you do therapy and what kind, or do you need medication? So they're just throwing medications at everybody. But some people come and they're like, I don't want to be on medication. I want to figure out what's wrong with me. They're curious. And that's when I bring them in and we slowly take them off medications. Some can do it. Some really do a lot better with the medication and the therapy. So we, I try to let them have all the options mm-hmm. instead of just... No, you need to do X. I just got an email from somebody who lives in a remote area and their uh, general practitioner uh, has them on meds and they want to see a psychiatrist. And the general practitioner said, you don't need to see a psychiatrist. Can you fucking believe that? Yes, I believe that. It happens every day, all the time. I, I it drives and, me nuts. And they said that to their therapist, and their therapist said, you don't need to see a psychiatrist. <sighs> and I said, fuck both of them. If you want to see a psych- psychiatrist, go see a psychiatrist. Insurance won't pay. Well, I said that there are some uh, who will Skype. Um, I guess they would have to oh, be in... Oh, they'll self-pay. I, I guess they'd have to be in their state 
right? If they yep. wanted to um, have meds yep. prescribed. Yep. And maybe you don't need meds, but it can't hurt to talk to a psychiatrist and, Absolutely. and find can't out. Hurt. Absolutely. I mean, how can, how can more information hurt? I have people, my friends, relatives in um, primary care who they, they, they feel their hands are tied. Someone starts crying and they're like, well, I give you a med. Uh, they don't get paid to do any therapy. They don't have, they have some training, but they do emergency psychiatry training. They don't do the nuances of what kind of, and what kind of therapy do they need? Mm-hmm. That's the other big problem. They'll send them off to one type of therapy and they'll say, oh, this sucks. I can't do this or I don't like this because they didn't send them the right kind. So it's a whole therapy mismatch problem. And is it just kind of an art figuring out what's the right therapy for somebody? <laughs> no, it's really not that. It's not an art that's hard to learn, but they just didn't get that. They, they were they were doing the hospital training. You know, someone comes in suicidal. What, are, what do you do? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a different area. But they're not seeing. I guess they do see that once in a while. But what they what we're talking about take. I, I, I've trained people to do this in I don't know half an hour. <laughs> Is is there a template that you can share with the listener about what types of therapy are best for what, what types of issues? It's hard because you have to see yourself, but I can definitely train the general practitioner of what to look for. And it's those characters. Do they have the warmth, empathy, stability, blah, blah, blah. Are they, what, what are the five characteristics? Okay, well, it's empathy is one. Are you able to imagine or um, know how someone feels in a certain certain situation? Um so that comes warmth, ethics, all that kind of thing. I actually tell my male patients who are trying to find a date that these women, these are like red flags you tell them to stay away from. They have to have empathy. And then... Um, in other words, stay away from a woman who doesn't have doesn't empathy. Doesn't have empathy, right. Mm-hmm. And you can figure this out in one date. Trust is another. Do they... And I don't mean just do they trust everybody, but can they... Do they have a capacity to trust anybody? Um Sometimes you'll see this in terms of government rules and regulations. Do they understand that those are in place for society as a whole, not to hurt her? You know, so do they have some sense of general trust? Um, stability. Do they flit from relationship to relationship? You know, um, do they have a lot of drama in their lives? Can't set boundaries, those kind of things. Um, and then the last one is identity. Do they have a strong sense of identity? Know what they like and don't like ethics, morals, do they uh, not abuse themselves? That's the substance abuse or cutting on themselves, hurting themselves, suicidal thoughts. If someone has all those, they're a person who can handle a long-term intimate relationship and they'll do well with dynamic type of therapy. Um, that's someone to get involved with in, in a relationship. If they don't have those, it's not saying they can't get better. It's going to take a really long time. That's a red flag find somebody else to get involved with and then the pathological altruism people say but they need my help like you know you want to be a parent or do you want to have a solid partner so we have to go through that uh but how about as a therapist the people that lack one of those five things so um, then they if they lack one of the five things they do better with cognitive behavioral therapy it's more hands-on more structured more um it's less of the about the relationship and more about the work I so they'll do better with that kind of therapy. Hmm. I had no idea. That's you and a lot of other people. <laughs> that's good. That's that's good to know. Um, but I just want to clarify that you're okay. not saying somebody who comes in that doesn't have stability, um, doesn't have uh, 
some of the other things that they're a hopeless case. Okay, it's the capacity for stability. I see. Yeah. So okay. if they come in and they say, "I want to," you know, I'm, "I'm an alcoholic," so they don't have the, um, they're not taking, the, they don't have the identity, they're not taking care of themselves. But man, I got to figure this out. I do not want to be this way. I don't. They have a curiosity about. It. They want to change. It's that's different when someone comes in your office and says that, as opposed to the person who's, um, yeah, I drink. What the hell's real wrong with that? I don't, she can't handle it. Then yeah. forget it. I mean, everybody drinks. That's not big. That's a different it's, story. Yeah. yeah. I always, uh, when, when people email me, I, I always say th- th- you have the most important ingredient, which is you are seeking. Yeah. Curiosity is what I say. It, it's, yeah. it's the hallmark That's of, it. of recovery. It's not about perfection. That's no. the other thing. My, my patient would come in, I made a mistake. Like, okay, that's, of course you did. It can be the best thing that ever happened to you sometimes. Exactly. But can you figure it out? Can you just figure out why? That's the, that's the beauty. It's not about never making a mistake or doing something wrong or regressing or whatever it Understanding is. Understanding your feelings after you made the mistake. After, that's, that's the key. That's huge. That, that's it. That's, that's everything. Yeah. Um, anything else you'd like to share? No, I just want to thank you so much for doing this because oh. it's so uncommon. I mean, it's just such a, it's such a necessity. And I feel sometimes like it's just my voice or my little group's voice. But when I hear someone on the other coast saying, you mm-hmm. say it's not, um, the other thing you say all the time is not the fan- it's not, there's not there's no such thing as a wrong fantasy, just how you act it out. Mm-hmm. I say there's no such thing as a wrong feeling, just how you act it out. Yes, I believe in that too. There's only healthy and unhealthy ways of expressing them. Right, and the boundaries and all that. But you, you, it's uncommon. That message has to get out more. I, I'm back on my insurance kick because they really stuff. We were on this route until they started stuffing, you know, all the therapy into a bag of no, we got to. Get rid of that. It's too expensive, too long. Give him a pill, give him a pill. But the problem with the pills, we started with this. The problem with the pills, okay, from a psychiatrist standpoint is <laughs> we would have the medication, um, no, the drug reps come in and talk to us. So what was it first? Serotonin. Oh, we figured out depression, serotonin, serotonin. Uh, two years later, uh, it's dopamine we figure it's dopamine it's dopamine it's dopamine dopamine doesn't you have to get the fourth brain chemical it doesn't take a genius to figure out they don't know they mm-hmm. do not know what it is they've not nailed any emotion down to a certain chemical so for that reason it's failed now it kind of doesn't matter in a way because it depends on the person so some people are going to respond to different medications differently but we're not at a point where like okay this chemical needs to be more of it or less of it to Feel this. Right. We're much more complicated than that member of the universe. Much yeah. more complicated than a serotonin level or nortriptyline level. So it's got to be. We got to. So insurance sort of hinges themselves on. Okay, this is going to be so much easier for us. But it's so much more complicated than that. And we've got to get to that point. Where we believe that all these options are there for everybody. And there's so much trial and error. It's, it's so all tr- trial and error. Do the genetic testing, uh, do you believe that that's helping narrow down what meds should be tried or not? Because I, I hear I, great things about it. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I haven't seen it play out yet. No? Because there's some people who's it's going to be one chemical. Some people's going to know this. Some going to be experience and not the chemicals. I just don't see how it's ever going to simplify it to that degree. 
but might it help at least find better ones to try first? I hope so. Okay. I hope so. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they do? And you do do Skype uh, sessions with people. Do you have yes. room in your schedule for new people? I do, and I have two associates, so we have room, more room coming up all the time. What's the website where they can, or uh, the email, either one? Yeah, com has everything on there. Dr. L, the, D- the letter L. Yeah, D-R-L-D-A-B-N-E-Y.com. Okay. Uh, Dr. Dabney, everything. thank you uh, so much. It was really, really great talking <laughs> to you. Thank you. I so appreciate it. Yeah, many, many thanks. I learned a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. I haven't met too many people that are therapists and uh, and psychiatrists. That's great. Um, before we take it out with some surveys, I uh, want to give some love to uh, to our sponsors. Uh, once again, the uh, Chicagoland Out of the Darkness Walk, uh, which you can find at chicagowalk.org. Uh, it's put on by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and it's going to be October 15th, uh, starting at 9 a.m., or at least that's when check-in and registration starts. Um, and it's at RV Field, which is in Grant Park in Chicago. And uh, you, you can either participate in the walk or you can sponsor somebody in the walk. And it's really, really important fundraiser um, because the funds allow the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to invest in new research, create educational programs, advocate for public policy, and most importantly, uh, most importantly, support uh, the survivors of suicide loss. Um, so check it out, chicagowalk.org. And again, it's going to be uh, October 15th at Grant Park in, uh, in Chicago. I uh, want to also give some love to uh, Probimune. Um, I know I asked you this already, but fuck it. I'm going to ask you again. Did you know that research suggests that up to 80% of your immune system relies on a healthy gut. Well, you know what? I fucking know that because I had, and I'm going to put one more fuck just to have three fucks for the nice people at uh, Young Health. Uh, I lived with an unhealthy gut for probably a decade, and I had no idea that there's good flora and there's bad flora in your gut. And having good flora makes all the difference in the world because a lot of your mood is affected by how healthy your gut is. It's directly, directly physically related. Um, your ability to digest things, how much energy you have. Uh, well, Probimune, uh, their industry-leading fermentation process ensures the largest number of good bacteria are delivered alive into the gut. It's a unique blend of bacteria not found in 99% of other probiotics. And after all, It's not about how many billions of bacteria are in there. It's how many survive the digestive process. Um, Probimune is easy to use, easy to travel with, doesn't require refrigeration, and it's great for the whole family. Actually, you know what? Grandma's been a bit of a bitch. I say you let her find her own. But I've been taking it every day. It's uh, super simple to take. And right now our listeners can get the exclusive offer of 50% off your first order of Probimune, a 30-day supply that's normally $34.95 for just $17.48 plus shipping and handling. All you have to do is go to Probimune.com. That's P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E.com and use the promo code MENTAL at checkout and you'll get 50% off your first order of Probimune. That's probimune.com, P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E.com, and use promo code MENTAL 
to get 50% off today. And finally, I want to give some love to Blue Apron. Uh, as I told you, I had been loving uh, their food. They started uh, sponsoring this show about, I think it was about two months ago, and they sent three three weeks of, of free meals uh, just to, to, to try it. And since that time, I have subscribed on my own and I make it every week and I love the recipes. There is a huge variety. Sometimes it's uh, seafood, sometimes it's pork or it's beef or it's chicken. You can also, if you're a vegetarian, you can get vegetarian dishes. Uh, my favorite in recent memory was the Mexican beef quesadillas with creamy corn and shishito pepper salsa. Holy mother of God, was it good. Um, it's less than 10 bucks per person per meal. Uh, it's free delivery. Uh, what, what, what more do you want to know? That, here's, I think, one of the most important things is uh, it gets you in touch with what it is that you're putting in your body. It's, it's not over-processed shit that is going to, you know, what's, what, what's the word that I want to use? Drag your energy down? This is going into a whole tangent that I think is completely unnecessary. Let's get back on track here, Paul. Uh, the ingredients they make uh, they make the recipes with are fresh. Um, they're sustainably harvested. You know, I could go on and on, but they've really thought of of everything. So um, check it out. Go to blueapron.com uh, and... Uh, Get your first three meals free with free shipping uh, by going to blueapron.com slash mental. Uh, some of the meals available in September, get a load of these, paprika spiced shrimp and cheddar grits with tomato and sweet corn. Uh, spicy hoisin chicken stir fry with baby bok choy. That was my name when I was a male dancer. Um, and sesame ginger, ginger cucumber salad. Uh, eggplant and chickpea tagine with island pepper, tomato, and couscous. And then summer udon. <laughs> udon? <laughs> we all know the Greek god udon. Uh, summer udon noodle salad with cherry tomatoes, corn, and summer sweet pepper. So, I mean, that, that gives you uh, an inkling of the variety of, of dishes. Um, you're going to love how good it tastes, how good it feels to eat it, and... Uh, that's fun to cook with people. That's blueapron.com slash mental. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Let's get to some surveys. Um, these are from the Struggle in a Sentence uh, survey, or at least this one is. It's filled out by um, a person who is gender fluid, uh, calling themselves trying to cope. Uh, and they're a teenager. And they write about their depersonalization disorder, a constant struggle of questioning my existence and not being able to hear my boyfriend as he asks, are you okay? Snapshot from their life. I have moments where I feel like I'm in a movie, an observer. I remember lying in bed with my boyfriend and hearing him in the distance asking if I was okay. He was right next to me and it felt like he was a block away. I couldn't get myself to answer because I didn't feel like I was the one being asked. In my head, I kept asking, why is this girl being such an idiot? Just answer him. But I wasn't aware I was the idiot at that moment. God, that sounds so surreal. Well, I guess it absolutely is the def definition of, uh, of surreal. Um, 
Smokey Joe writes about uh, his anger issues. It's not the vacuum cleaner's fault that you got picked on as a kid, but I'm going to take my anger out on it anyway. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, Raised by Wolves. And um, she is in her 40s, straight, raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, my older brother sodomized me in our home when I was seven. He was 16. I always assumed there were more incidents, but this is the only one I clearly remember. Uh, my female babysitter also sexually abused me when I was around the same age. She was 12 or 13 at the time. She's also been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, My mother was undiagnosed bipolar and often in a rage. She hit me beginning when I was around six or seven and until I left home for college at age 17. She was also emotionally abusive, calling me names like slut, saying I was ungrateful, telling me that compliments were put-downs and my friends didn't really like me, etc. She was often just wildly inappropriate gave terrible, quote, advice and embarrassed me constantly with her strange behavior. I had one boyfriend in my early 20s who threw a skateboard at me and gave me some bruises. I left immediately and that never happened again. My other brother, who was also bipolar slash schizophrenic and was in his 20s when he moved back home and uh, and his room was right next to mine. I was five or six. I don't know if it's emotional abuse, but he was scary as hell to live next to. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Um, absolutely. And, and this is one of the things I find so um, fascinating about caregivers who are abusive is they very often have this other side to them. Um, and who knows whether it's uh, genuine or not. But um, for instance, listen, uh, my mother... Also had a fragility that meant I've always felt very protective of her. Well, I don't think that's a good thing. <laughs> um, ironically, she is the most helpful when there is a crisis, like when I needed to get clean from heroin and she didn't judge at all and simply called our insurance and checked me in. Uh, I looked up to my brother and he shared his love of music and fashion with me. He was the only person in our household who admitted to me uh, once that our mother was crazy. He would leave me nice notes in my room sometimes. He was the only person in our house who I felt actually liked me. God, what a mind fuck that must have been. Darkest thoughts. I often catch myself with my young son wondering what a pedophile would be thinking about at that moment. I accept it as a fucked up glitch in my head and try to not feel any shame about it. Still, I would never tell anyone because I doubt they would understand. Darkest secrets. I honestly don't have any secrets anymore. I let them out when I got sober. Uh, that thing they say in AA, you're only as sick as your secrets, is partially true. It is a constant source of pride that I live an honest life. Still, I don't talk about my own struggles with mental illness, diagnosed bipolar 2, have attempted suicide, very often, or any of it for that matter. I guess you could say my entire life is a secret, except to my husband, who is also a recovering addict. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Incest fantasies, mother-daughter, mother-brother-sister, uh, degradation fantasies, and lesbian fantasies. I think it makes me feel relief to share that. I don't think it takes a genius to see the connection between my fantasies and my trauma. I've had a lot of therapy and I know that sexual fantasies are just that and I should just go with it as long as it stays in my head. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would love to tell my mother that I hate her. 
I haven't been able to because my family is very wealthy and have been helping to support us financially. I'm afraid they'll take the money away abruptly and we'd be up shit creek. I'm working on it. That has to be really hard, being financially dependent on somebody who's abusive. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish my entire family would simultaneously die. Again, a fantastic t-shirt. Have you shared these things with others? My therapist, who is fantastic. With non-professionals, not so much. I can share bits and pieces, but instead of creating closeness with friends, it's actually totally alienating. The entire story is way too much. Not to mention, when is a good time to make everyone feel super uncomfortable? A dinner party? After the movies? Lunch break? I've never had any close or best friends except my husband. It sucks as much as the initial trauma. Not being able to explain that I'm basically a, quote, rescue human who is still becoming socialized. Wow, that's such an interesting way to look at it. And... Um, uh, I wonder how many people from uh, your support group you're, you're hanging out with, because I would think that those would be safe people to, to share that with. Uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Get help. There are good people everywhere. You can still have good things in your life if you work very hard and honestly and commit to creating a better life for yourself. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by No Shit Frankenstein, and she writes... Uh, realizing at 35 that my expectation of my significant others to keep the door open while they use the bathroom or let me be in the bathroom while they use the toilet was a leftover from growing up with no boundaries. I begrudgingly respected my partner's desires uh, to keep me out of the bathroom while they used it. Only by listening to your show uh, did I come to recognize how maladaptive this instinct was in me. My mom would always ask us children to come into the bathroom while she was using the toilet or laying naked in the tub. She would also walk around the house naked and stopped only when my young younger brother hit puberty, saying uh, that only then was it inappropriate for her to be doing so. Anyway, coming to this realization makes me chuckle because, duh, no sane person wants someone else around while they're taking a dump. Well, actually, I bet there are a lot of people that uh, um, enjoy having somebody uh, uh, watch them dump or watching somebody uh, dump. But yeah, I would agree for the most part. Uh, I've never personally... Uh, you know, wanted, uh, I, that just seems like it would, you know, when you've been living with somebody for a long time, a, a lot of any kind of fantasies or mystery that you have about that other person, uh, have been popped, but dumping in front of each other. I, I think that's, I think you're, there's nothing left to the imagination after, after that. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Bodie McBoatface. Uh, I assume filled out while uh, she's on a boat. And uh, she deals with depression and a snapshot from her life. She writes, I cannot stand the treatment I am locked into because I am on Medicaid. I will start crying when I talk about my old psychiatrist and therapist because I can't afford them ever since my father passed away. I find myself completely stuck. If I complain, it only furthers my diagnoses and I'm forced to suffer in silence. 
This is not what mental health care should ever feel like. This is not what treatment should feel like. Boy, that's almost exactly what uh, Dr. Dabney was was talking about. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're having to go through that. That really fucking sucks. Uh, This is an awfulsome moment filled out by V. And she writes, My father, after raising me through 25 up and down years of tough love parenting and conditional affection, became gravely ill with colon cancer. He was no longer himself. Physically, he was gaunt and pale. But more jarringly, he wasn't making any sense. His brain had swollen over the course of his illness and he could only speak in a strange word salad. My father had a great lifelong love of food and within the context of our touch-and-go relationship, it was one of the few things that felt like safe territory. During phone calls home, I'd get him to temporarily abandon the pointed questions about my grades or my study habits by getting him to detail the steps for elaborate family recipes or by telling him about a new sandwich place I'd discovered near my dorm. By the time he hit the later stages of his illness, my dad's characteristic appetite had evaporated. Strong smells or flavors would put him off, and he would often lose the desire to eat between saying he was hungry and the food being put in front of him. One afternoon, in an effort to help my mom out with her caretaking duties, I cooked my dad a plain cheese omelet. He wasn't ready to eat it by the time it was done, so I slipped a bowl over the top of the plate, thinking I'd be able to keep it warm for a little while longer. Eventually, the omelet was brought over to the living room by my mom while I peeked around the corner from the kitchen. I watched as my dad slowly, gingerly sat up on the couch in his bathrobe, took a bite, chewed, and made the clearest, most coherent statement I had heard him utter in days. It's rubbery. My mother walked back to the kitchen expecting that I would be inconsolable. Instead, she found me doubled over laughing. Oh, that's one of the things I love when you guys fill these surveys out, that something that you just suddenly realize is life is too short to take all these moments too seriously. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Bio Gurley, who, who, who has crying herself to sleep for dinner. Maybe it's supposed to be was. Um, about her bulimia. Not very good at puking, but I give it my best. Wow. Wow. A snapshot from her life. I used to be a happy, flirty drunk who giggled and danced when alcohol lowered my inhibitions. Now, when I drink even a sip of alcohol and my self-control loosens just one chain link, I spend the night ugly crying. I've seen that happen to a lot of people, and, and it never reverses it always goes to that place. Um, yeah, I, I hope you're trying trying to, to get sober because not only is that not fun being that person, but boy, is that not fun having the friend that uh, that happens to every time they drink. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by My Dog Means Most, and uh, she's straight in her 50s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, My sister was assaulted by our very next door, quote, family friend when she was 14. He was a neighborhood peeping Tom as well. His daughter said he raped his niece. It was the 70s. The cops slapped his hand. He was in the church. My mom was a divorcee. We were ostracized. I've never trusted organized religion since. My dad still shook his hand when he came to pick us up. He later say 
He later would say he never knew. Not true. Uh, We were left home alone a lot during my mom's work and play. We lived there for five more years. I spent a lot of time there with their kids. I feel he put his finger inside me as a little girl. To this day, I hate when my husband does this. PTSD treatment has made me able to have sex without a lot of anger. I dressed as a boy from about 9 to 17 years old, dreaming of having a penis, but I, w- but I was hurt when people thought uh, I was a boy. Uh, question mark. I'm not trans at all. I enjoy being feminine. I think I was hiding from abuse. I didn't think I was good enough to be a girl. I knew I was no good from at least kindergarten and so kept it to myself. I was nicknamed lonely when I went to a summer camp, uh, work camp for teens. I had bulimia for 17 years. I've had major depression since at least age five. I first planned to kill myself when I learned about women's menstrual cycles at school. I sometimes hate all humans. She's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, She writes, only one abusive relationship. I met him. He asked to stay with me uh, between apartments. Uh, He wouldn't leave. I was alone in the state. Just left the army. Was in college. She said, I know where you work and where you park your car. I only cared about getting my degree in medical technology so I could be independent. He stayed two years until he was interested in someone else. He choked me and threw things at me. He went out a lot in my car did whatever did whatever and i graduated three years later i was depressed about him my bulimia and my fears of failing school he said if you want to kill yourself then do it and put a pistol to my head he left i sat there for hours contemplating i decided to give myself another chance good for you darkest thoughts i would like to travel the united states killing child pornographers uh, rapists, predators. I would like to ask my abuser's son, uh, my playmate, if he knew what his dad was, uh, but he's now dead. Darkest secrets. A suicide plan gave me the bravery to leave the army and go to college. I thought I'd fail out or go broke on the street. I wasn't going back home. I'd try my, I tried my best, and if I wasn't able to do it, I'd peace out, kill myself. I came close once because I didn't realize I was trying to hurriedly memorize the text instead of understand it. I got a C on my first chemistry test and knew I had five more to go. I saw no way to success. I couldn't stop my bulimia and get rid of my abusive boyfriend. I sat with my gun for hours crying. Finally, I decided that I didn't have to get A's. Uh, I would drop this class and start over next quarter and study just the basics until I understood it Uh, Well, even if I got B's or C's. I graduated with a 3.8 average. It's the most important thing I've done for myself. I'm totally self-sufficient and have a nice career working in hospital laboratories. Uh, I peed my pants in junior high. I sometimes had no control. I took an extra shirt to school to put around my waist and didn't drink water. I didn't tell my mom uh, because when this problem first came up at four years old, I was taken to the doctor. The doctor catheterized me to give to get a urine sample. This was traumatic, uh, maybe because of earlier abuse. I would think any catheter being put into a kid, into any human being, uh, would, but especially a kid, would be uh, traumatic. Um, I wasn't going back to the doctor. I let a man I met on the internet have sex with me because he came a long way to meet me. I didn't want to. 
I let probably eight men have sex with me in the army when I didn't want to. My abusive boyfriend would beg me for sex. I'd finally say, okay, but hurry up, or are you done yet, uh, to turn him off. It didn't work. I told my PTSD psychologist that I was raped in the army because I can't remember anything that happened with the neighbor. Uh, I wasn't. I was sexually harassed and pressured into sex. I had the people skills of probably a 13-year-old when I went into the army. I could barely talk to people. I got pulled out of my shell, which was good, but it left scars. Um, you know, I wanted to, to comment uh, on that because um, while in terms of uh, prosecution, um, what happened to you may not be classified as rape, but in terms of what you experienced, it was like rape. And that is really important, in my opinion, to give weight to so that you can feel the feelings about it and process them and cry and mourn and be angry and sad and, you know, all the all the emotions that come out. Um but left scars. The therapy has helped me immensely in my marriage and I'm able to have sex with only a small amount of anger. I'm only angry when he puts his finger in me, but okay with intercourse and other things. I'm able to tell him what's okay for me because of my PTSD therapy. But I think not letting him use his finger may be asking too much. Question mark. How much can I ask of him? Question mark. Well, you know what I would ask yourself is what would you do if the roles were reversed would you say to would you say to him um uh you know i i have the feeling if you put yourself in his shoes you would say oh i would not want to do that because it would freak him out and i don't want him to feel upset and i guess that's my long way around of of saying you are worth having sex in a way that is within your comfort zone. And having sex outside of your comfort zone is not, in my opinion, a marital duty. Uh, I think when two people are committed to each other, I think maybe an unwritten thing between them is that it you're... Whatever you do, no matter how kinky it gets, there's going to be consent and you're going to communicate and hopefully the other person will feel safe. Um, so I don't know. I bring that up in... I'd bring it up in therapy, but I just I really wanted to comment on that. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My sexual fantasies don't include sex, kind of. I'm alone with President Obama or my doctor. We sit very close, talk about the music we like, sing, hold hands, and touch, but no getting naked. It sounds like what you're really craving is is emotional intimacy with somebody and being seen and and feeling safe and that's why I think it's even more important that you ask your husband to not do that. There's a gazillion ways two people can get each other off um, while avoiding certain things that are triggering to the other person. And if he's not okay with that, um, then he's kind of a dick. And, 
and I would think that would need addressing and counseling. And I have the feeling if you if you explain it to him the way you did in this survey, um, he'd probably understand. Anyway, continuing. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could enjoy sex and not be angry about it. Well, you know, I wonder if if you begin to express your needs less apologetically and have them honored and respected by your husband, it might bring you closer together and it might make sex a better experience. I mean, it might not, but uh, you know, what the, what the hell? What do you got to lose uh, trying it? Um, have you shared these things with others? Most with therapists. I keep everyone else at a distance. I feel I did it uh, alone all my life. Why share the hard stuff now? I've shared some things with my hubby in therapy. Sometimes I think I don't need people. I need my pets. I love them. I actually, my pets are the only ones that I tell the deepest, darkest uh, secrets to. And and actually, I don't even share them with, with Ivy. I just share them with Herbert. Um, but he gets bored really fast. So I just have to keep feeding him treats. Um. How do you feel after writing these things? I so want to go back and rewind that. That was a waste of five seconds of everybody's life. How do you feel after writing these things down? Satisfied. I want to get in the forum and ask people or how to become okay with sexual touch again. I was okay for years, but since my mid-30s, I've really wanted to give it up. I don't think I can do that and stay married. Um, just keep working on it with that, with that counselor and... Um, there's a, a certain type of therapist called a CSAT, uh, C-S-A-T, which means Certified Sex Addiction Therapist. And it's not necessarily just about sex addiction uh, that, that they can help you with, but the relationship between sexuality and trauma and compulsion and avoidance and all those other kinds of things, because it's a really just big mixed up bowl of spaghetti um, with with people. And... Uh, a CSAT can help not only you navigate what you want or don't want, but how you and your husband can explore that together in a way that is um, uh, safe for you and ultimately, uh, hopefully, uh, satisfying for for him. But you, you know, you deserve to feel safe um, when it comes to sex, or to say. Um, you know, I, I don't want to take my clothes off. You know, what would be wrong with saying, you know, for the next year, can I, uh, can we just do such and such or, or not do anything at all? Say, you know, can we, can I have some time to heal? Um, somebody who truly loves their partner will say, yes, I want you to get better. You know, I'll jerk off or, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> This is from the Awfulsome Moment survey, and uh, my stripper name is Selexa, uh, writes, after a really stressful week, I called my dad crying to ask for work advice. A manager had accused me of acting entitled and of being oversensitive to some unprofessional things, he said. In response, my dad told me a war story about his friends getting killed in Vietnam. Dad's advice was to tell my boss that I was the daughter of a Purple Heart recipient and that I shouldn't be treated that way. 
wonder where the entitlement came from. And then in parentheses, I love my dad so much. Oh my God. Social worker struggling. Uh, she deals with depression and anxiety, and she writes, The feeling of hypocrisy that creeps over you when, as a social worker, you're telling your client the importance of taking care of yourself when all you want to do is go home and lie on the couch and think about nothing, even though that's not fixing anything. Helping others with their problems is so impossibly difficult when you are struggling to deal with your own. You know, I, I think, though, that's one of the things that makes... A therapist or a social worker more empathetic and more intuitive as they know they didn't read it in a book they've lived what that other person uh, is experiencing this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself red and uh, the first one he writes, uh, when my now wife-to-be saw a picture of me as a child and told me she can't wait to have a kid that looks just like me. God, that is so beautiful. The first time I read this, I that had tears in my eyes. Um, and then his other one is, uh, I at one time had decided I was going to commit suicide, but never did. A few years after that, I was with a friend who knew, and he said that I was the best example of why no one should commit suicide. It makes me cry to think of these moments. Made me cry too. Thank you for that, Red. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Kumbaya Bitches, Kumbaya, and uh, about being a sex crime victim, she writes, well, he kissed me during sex, so it must not have been rape. Um, boy, it's amazing the lies that uh, survivors tell themselves to avoid the, the painful truth um, about experiencing uh, racial or cultural bias. Uh, she writes, I was told which kind of Asians I was allowed to date. If not any of those, then a white guy is okay. Snapshot from her life. I told my boyfriend to tell me he wanted to have sex with another girl. It was foreplay for me. It was uncomfortable for him. He doesn't want to. He thinks it's a horrible idea. I keep pushing it, though. I don't know why I want this. I don't want to be with another man. I don't want even a threesome. I want to watch him lust over an extremely beautiful woman in front of me. Maybe it's because I enjoy voyeurism, or maybe because... It's my commitment phobia, or maybe I've just gotten used to being cheated on so many times in the past that I don't understand why he hasn't done it yet. Uh, well, there's a, a term for that, and it's called, um, uh, not for the fantasizing about it, but the uh, the acting out of it, having your partner have sex with somebody in front of you, and it's called cuckolding, and um, it's a thing, and um, you know, it's, it's, don't, there, there's, Nothing weird about having that fantasy. Um, whether or not you want to do it in real life, I'm sure would be much more complicated. But um, uh, I would imagine that would throw you into a bit of a why the fuck do I, you know, want this to happen? But if you've listened to this show enough, you know that uh, sexual fantasies are fucking complicated and interesting. Um, this is a shame and secret survey. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from this one. This is filled out by Pug Fight. And um, I don't know I have. I guess I don't have the age or any of that stuff about Pug Fight. But uh, Pug Fight is a, is a female. And um, 
some uh, you ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but I don't know if it counts um, uh, but that's not the part I want to read um, you know I was talking in an earlier survey about the complex relationship between a, a person and um, when you have a relationship with somebody who is abusive, how there can often be this other side to them that's really great and how confusing it can be. And um, to the question, have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, She writes, uh, yes, to both of them. My mother, what a peach. She was so mercurial that I was constantly scared of her moods until the day of her death in 1997. One minute, I could just be doing a chore, reading, eating, just living my life. And the next minute, she would be losing her shit. Once when I was 17, I decided it would be cute to steal a lipstick from Walmart. Well, I was caught. Once we were done dealing with the in-store detectives and we were settled into the car, she proceeded to beat me until I pissed my pants. The worst part was I was 17. I should not have been such a quivering mess. When I got home, I had to do a six-page written Bible study. I know I was wrong for stealing that makeup, but I do not think the punishment fit the crime. Uh, I think the question is, what color was the lipstick? Because if it was a horrible colored lipstick, it should have been eight pages. That's just, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't even know what, like, a good, I suppose it depends on the person you put lipstick on, but, um, um, here's what I know. I'm not a fan of black lipstick. I think anything other than like black or blue lipstick uh, looks fine. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My mother and I were creative together. She was smart and an amazing person, but she left the idea that Jesus would fix her when really she needed medication and counseling. Darkest thoughts. I love this. One day, my husband will discover the hack piece of shit that I really am, and he will fuck off so that I can go all gray gardens and eat cat food and make friends with raccoons until the police drag me out of my home. Then I will live on the streets, a crusty old bag lady, until I die and decay into a dumpster. I kind of want to end the show on that, but uh, I've got I've got a couple of good things left that I want to read. Thank you for that. That really made me laugh. Um, I had that kind of brain when I was like eight years old, and I didn't realize that everybody doesn't have that kind of brain. Um, one of the kids on my baseball team said, "Hey, do that thing," and I was like, "What are you talking about? That thing where you know you you one thing leads to another horrible thing and leads to, and so you know I would just riff off the top of my head about you know oh you get hit, hit in the face with the baseball and your eye falls out and somebody slips on it you know just as a car is, goes by, and these guys were just amazed and uh, it that's not really an impressive skill." Or let's put it this way, there are a lot of other impressive skills I wish I had than, uh, you know, having nuclear-powered uh, catastroph- catastrophization. Uh, oh, Jesus, rewind. Just fucking rewind. You're a terrible human being. You should get off the planet. You should make room for other people who are worthy. Oh, that's DJ voice. He snuck in. He was he was doing an impression of my voice, so I didn't recognize it. Uh, you caught me, Paul. Rockin' the Quad Cities. The Buckman Tutor Overdrive. 
This is a happy moment filled out by Anxiously Anxious. And she writes, I was sitting on my brother's couch sobbing as I told him and my sister-in-law about my suicide attempt two days before. I had asked my parents to let me tell my brother. I felt like it was a big step for me to be able to talk about what I had been through and was feeling. As I sat on his couch sobbing and barely able to get the words out, his 18-month-old son waddled over to me and said, Crying? I was terrified that I was scaring him and tried to compose myself, and he looked at his mom asked her why I was sad, and walked back over to me. He crawled up onto my lap and gave me a hug, and in that moment I knew that it was going to be okay. I don't know that I exactly felt happy. I was pretty numb and don't remember really having emotions for a while after my attempt, but I know that I have never been so grateful to have, quote, failed at taking my own life. <coughs> Excuse me. To this day, being around my nephew brings me more joy than anything in the world. I'm so lucky to have his love in my life. That's another one the first time I read it. I uh, Tears to my eyes. When you can make a guy who is dead inside get tears in his eyes, you, my friend, have accomplished something. Uh, this is an email I got from uh, Brian Wright, uh, who's at sales1atwexoncars.com. And he writes, Dear Madam, Dear Sir, do you believe in God? Um, if so, uh, then you can get God's presence into your home or an office with our splendid and blessed figurines of the baby Jesus of Prague. These wonderful figurines of the baby Jesus of Prague have been blessed at the church of Our Lady Mary Victorious in Prague, and they are decorated with 14 karat gold. Um, I wanted to read this to you guys because I'm very confused. For one, I'm, I'm extremely interested because I have been meaning to expand my figurine collection since... I think since Y2K, I think that was the time when I went, okay, uh, figurines are safe. Um, but I like my figurines in 28 karat gold. And I'm afraid that I'm going to get these and then they're going to look cheap. And then here's the other problem that I really need to pick your brain on. is there are This is a figurine uh, that was blessed at the Church of Our Lady Mary Victorious. I'm not a big fan of Our Lady Mary Victorious. Should I hold out for one uh, blessed at Our Lady Mary Trounced? Uh, maybe Our Lady Mary lost in overtime? Uh, how about Our Lady Mary uh, lost by a nose due to horrible officiating? How about Our Lady Mary of Downton? <sighs> Rewind. Rewind. All right, we're in the home stretch. This is a happy moment from Elizabeth. And she writes, My husband comes home from work frustrated, tearful. He hates his job, and I've been worrying about this conversation all day. What if he shouts? What if we argue? What if I can't help at all and make it worse? My anxiety increases throughout the day. When we actually do have the conversation, we work through it as a team, and I feel totally free to say, I don't think that's a good idea, or I would be unhappy if you worked abroad again. And there's no argument, no tension. He listens to me. I listen to him. 
and it's like we're doing homework together trying to solve a math problem. Later, I take a minute in the bathroom to reflect. It's such a small thing, but it's so important. After the years of emotional and physical abuse from previous shitty boyfriends, I'm so incredibly grateful to have a partner with whom I can actually do this. I'm so lucky, and in that moment I feel utterly victorious, not Our Lady Mary victorious, uh, over my abusers and my past. There will always be effects of their abuse lingering over me, constant apologizing, hypersensitivity, sometimes hiding my feelings or reactions for fear of provoking a fight, low self-esteem, the list goes on. But in that moment, I could see that all the work I'd been doing in counseling, all the work we'd done together, our shared patience and promises have paid off. Although by no means perfect, our marriage is full of love and support And I'm not as broken as those shitty ex-boyfriends made me think I was. I am capable of this. I am worth this. And I'm so happy. I deserve to be happy. Thank you so much for that. It's amazing. Every week, I worry that there's not going to be the right balance of surveys or emails or whatever it is that I use to put together stuff outside of the interview itself. And it just always shows up. And this is a blog post that I reposted on our website. And this is written by um, Katie Hirschberg. She's 20 years old, and she's the daughter of a a friend of mine, Alan, who is also a listener. Hi, Alan. And we're going to try to have uh, Katie on as a a guest and and possibly have Alan uh, sit in as well if if she's comfortable with that. Um, But she wrote this blog, and uh, I wanted to to close with this. And uh, it's a letter to her 16-year-old self. Uh, In four months, I will be 20 years old, two decades. This is an important year for me. Four years ago, I couldn't see myself where I am today. Four years ago, I didn't have much hope. My 16-year-old self almost didn't make it. I wrote this letter for her. It's extremely personal. I'd like to think she's proud of the person she grew up to be. Dear 16-year-old Katie, you're in your junior year of high school, and it's proving to be just as difficult as people told you it would be. For you specifically, though, this year comes with a unique set of challenges. This year, you have developed depression, only you don't know that it's depression. You just think you're a failure. You're sad. You sleep a lot. You don't eat enough. You hate yourself. It's hard. Actually, hard is an understatement. There isn't really a word that describes what you're going through accurately. It feels as though life is a mountain that you're trying to climb with flip-flops. You can't get very far. In the middle of the night, one Sunday in April, you will wake up and write a suicide note. You won't end up going through with it, but you keep it on your laptop and read it every single day for a week. You will lock yourself in the bathroom one afternoon, bottle of pills in hand, clutching your laptop, reading the letter to your parents over and over. You think you might do it. But your mom comes home, knocks on the door, and makes you realize that she will lose everything if she loses you. That night, you tell your parents you want to go to therapy. You make a silent vow to yourself to make it to your 20th birthday. If you can just make it to 20, maybe things will be better. 
It's only four years away, but it feels like a lifetime because every single day is a battle. You go to therapy. You start to get better. You stop wanting to die. But you still don't really want to live either. I'm writing this to you, my 16-year-old self, who is caught somewhere between life and death, who hates herself, who is looking for love in all the wrong places, who doesn't see a happy ending, who doesn't believe she will go to college, who doesn't think she has a future, who thinks that when she does make it to 20, life will just be as hard, who thinks that her life will be cut short after only two decades on earth. I'm writing this to you now, four months before my 20th birthday. 16-year-old Katie, I wish I could actually send this letter. I wish that there were a way for you to know that it will all be worth it. I want you to know that, as cliche as it sounds, it does get better. As I write this, I am sitting in my apartment in college over 300 miles away from home. I am happy. I am not just existing. I am alive. When I celebrate my 20th birthday in four months, I won't just be celebrating another year of life. I will be celebrating for my 16-year-old self. I will be celebrating her choice to stay alive despite the weight of her pain. I will be celebrating the fact that I am still here and that I want to be here. 16-year-old Katie, I know that you are unhappy. But this unhappiness will be short-lived in the grand scheme of things. You will get through it. You will learn self-love. You will learn self-acceptance. You'll learn to live. It will all be worth it. And I am proud of you. Love your 19-year-old self. P.S. Surprise. You're bi. I can't wait to interview her. Wow. You guys are amazing. Well, I hope anybody who's listening feels a little more hope, feels a little less alone, is a little closer to making that scary first call to a trusted friend or a therapist or social worker or somebody. And... um just never forget that you're you're not alone and thanks for listening everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody i know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way